You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in five, four, three, two. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This program is made possible because of Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, the Griffin Foundation, and the Hereditary Disease Foundation. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today I am so excited to have uh, Dr. Jamie Hamilton on with me uh, from CHDI, and we are going to be talking about um, some really important stuff, stuff that we don't normally talk about, and that is the cost of Huntington's disease. Uh, but before we get started with that, Jamie, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Great. And Lauren, it's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And so excited to talk about the HD charge study and why it's an important um, study. Absolutely. So before we get into HD charge, um, I like to ask people who come on my podcast, why <laughs> Huntington's disease? You know, what made you choose Huntington's and CHDI? Yeah, so um, I've always been interested in changes in neurodegeneration and looking at comparisons across disease stages. And what was really interesting to me is looking at independent and shared contributions to decline in older adults. This really kind of piqued my interest in exploring um, diseases that have kind of a smaller sample or population of individuals that may be experiencing symptoms. And in the Alzheimer's space, uh, it's very broad and, and considers a lot of different uh, dementia types. And so was very interested in making the move to the rare disease space, really to address the kind of prevailing unmet needs in this space. And this is really important because there's just not a lot of therapeutic options available in the rare disease space. And I really wanted to make a difference in this space. So it was really important to be able to contribute uh, to the body of work, not only for cognitive outcomes, but also being able to better understand things that can have an impact in this community. And so it's really been a joy to be at CHDI. I've been here for over three years and uh, was really excited to lead the HD Charge study. And we're certainly glad to have you, um, you know, in the in this space, because I, I think it's so important to to have this, uh, right? The neuropsychology is such a big part of things that we don't think of. Um, and so seeing more neuropsychologists kind of come into this space is really nice. Um, so let's talk about HD charge. What is yes. HD charge? So HD charge is a great example of what we call a health economics outcomes research focused study. Lots of words usually referred to as HEOR. And that is an area of research that's really considered a complement to therapeutic development. And this is because we're very focused in this area of research to look at cost effectiveness, benefit, value of potential new drugs that come to market so that we can make decisions around clinical care, uh, policy, cost pricing. 
And so health economists in this area look at various sources of information to have a better understanding of the cost associated with therapeutic uh, development and also care and clinical care as well as clinical care interventions. So the uh, you know, health economists consider many components of cost and there's really four broad categories that are often used. There's direct cost. These things are really tied to what we consider medical claims. These are things that when you go to the doctor's office, you know, you get seen by a professional, you know, you may have a claim for your visit submitted on your behalf and either your insurance or whatever coverage you may have may pay a portion of that and you may have nothing to pay out of pocket or you may have something to pay out of pocket. Those things are easy to track and document because you're obviously, these things are captured in electronic, very large data sets so that we're able to capture those direct medical costs. But there's other components of costs, such as indirect costs. These things are much harder to quantify because these things are just not reported in a clinical setting. And so we have you know, not a lot of information around indirect or what we call intangible costs, those costs that we just don't have that information on. And this can be anything from out-of-pocket cost of paying for prescriptions for, you know, an unrelated um, health condition. This can be transportation. This can be um, many other factors that contribute to things that you're paying kind of out-of-pocket, which is why we call them indirect, you know, not directly related to your care, but it's, you know, indirectly related to your care. And so the study focuses on capturing uh, indirect cost information in HD uh, participants who are enrolled in the enrolled platform study. That's awesome. Okay. So I want to ask a question because yeah. I find this very interesting, um, focusing on the indirect cost. Um, and you mentioned that you are getting that data from Enroll HD. Mm -hmm. um, are you... Are you getting that from, you know, you mentioned uh, like transportation costs, things like that are indirect costs. Mm -hmm. So would you get that information from, or can you even get it from like Medicaid and Medicare um, and things like that because of those yeah. that are involved? Or do you just get it from uh, people who are willing to answer the questions and enroll? Yeah. So these are individuals who are active participants in the enroll platform study and the participating sites. Uh, the study was done in the U.S. across 11 uh, sites that represented all U.S. geographical locations. Um, the study sites would inform them about the HD charge study and individuals would consent to provide information to an indirect cost focused survey um, and had a bunch of questions tied to various cost categories to have a better, really obtain a better understanding of what these costs look like. Now there's about 15 broad categories that are captured in this. So you can imagine a lot of information was captured, but it uh, really sought to understand how much people are spending on medical costs that is not covered by insurance. Are there other expenditures um, that individuals are spending over, you know, a, annual basis that we should be aware of, um, which can really be helpful information when we think about preparing drugs for market, um, coming up with those costs for how much uh, uh, an affordable drug will be available, and then also helps to inform decision and policy um, decision-making. Yeah, which is very, uh, very interesting that you said that. Um, and the reason why and I'm going to mention this is I recently went to Washington, D.C. 
to share my story um, through Institute for Gene Therapies. And this is exactly what we were talking about is the cost of everything, cost of gene yeah. therapies, the cost of, of um, just drugs in general. And the fact that all of these families who, who are dealing with rare diseases, um, they have so many additional costs. And so we don't need to be spending a ton of money on our drugs when we're already having to pay out of pocket for so much other stuff, especially resources, in-home care, things like that. So um, this is why this information is so important. And I think um, as a community, we don't talk about it. It's, uh, you know, I was mentioning earlier, it's just the kind of this taboo topic. We don't, we don't, we kind of push it on the side. We don't talk about it. So I'm really glad that it's finally uh, coming up. Yeah, and this is exactly why, you know, um, there is a stigma associated with reporting on financial experiences, right? It's very private, um, the decisions that families make of what things they cover, who pays for what. Uh, it's very personal. And so having an online survey that was able to capture this information where individuals could provide this information confidentially and their privacy was protected really gave people the opportunity to be as transparent um, with the information they shared because if we don't have this information it's very hard to understand what the total burden of, of you know hd is and that includes that direct cost you know those things that are tied to your medical care and those indirect and intangible costs which are so much harder to quantify by having that information we can combine direct cost data with indirect cost data to provide kind of a total burden of, of hd uh, picture and, and provides much more information about what the experience looks like so long, you know, HD progression. Yeah, absolutely. And do you have, oh, I think we mentioned, you mentioned this earlier, so the data is coming in now. This is Yes. So do you have some of that that you could share with us right now? Yeah, so I'm so excited in that we just kind of did our final kind of data set preparation and, and we're really getting into the nitty gritty of analyzing the data. But I do have some um, preliminary results that I can share with you. Um, and before going on, I do just want to thank all of the participating Enroll HD sites that were instrumental in helping us recruit, enroll, and consent these individuals and the HD and companion community, which we call our caregiver companion partners, uh, for their time and contribution to this very important study. Without this information, we cannot make such um, and, and have a better understanding of these insights in this area. And so I just want to thank all of those individuals for, for their time and effort. Yeah, absolutely. So important. Yes. You know, another thing about this study is that we did collect this data during the pandemic, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so uh, we were a little bit concerned about what the data quality would look like, um, but really having an online survey uh, deployed to individuals made it much, much easier to capture this information. So our target uh, study sample size was 240. Um, and we were just shy of that target and um, with having a total study sample of 233 individuals who are either HD um, individuals with HD uh, and their companions. Um, individuals could be diet, so from the same family or household, but you didn't that wasn't a requirement. So we did have a really nice representation across HD and companion groups. We did have slightly more HD participants, about 124 participants contributed data and about 109 companions for a total of uh, 233 uh, survey respondents. Um, we did, you know, 
companions were a little bit older than our uh, people with HD, but just slightly, about 57 was the average age um, for our companions, whereas uh, people with HD were about 54. So very, very close in age, um, although we did find, um, and it's consistent with the literature, that there are more female care companions compared to males, but there are more male HD uh, participants in this study compared to women. Um, and so that is consistent with what we typically see with survey-based research studies. Um, but given uh, the sample size, I think that's really a great distribution of participants. And individuals represented both HD and companion respondents across HD progression. So that included early, middle, and late stage. And that was really based on the Scholson and Fawn staging system and the total functional capacity or TFC data. I'm actually excited that you got so many that um, were, were people with HD because a lot of times in the past, um, you would have caregivers do a lot of it and yeah. you wouldn't lose that perspective from the person with HD. So I love that you got so many with uh, with HD that participated. Yeah. And we're so, this is really why we're so excited about analyzing this data because we really want to better understand what these differences in cost expenditures look like at various stages of progression. And if we can get more information around that experience, we also have that open kind of open text responses as well, which takes a little bit longer to go through that data. But we've just been incredibly um, thankful to the study sample for, for providing that information so that we can have a better understanding of what these uh, costs look like in this community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm excited. I'm excited to hear uh, about this and, and your preliminary stuff. Go yeah. for it. Yeah, so uh, what we found was that as we uh, basically confirmed our hypothesis, our, our initial hypothesis was that both the companions and people with HD experience a significant indirect and out-of-pocket cost burden. And our study really confirmed uh, that evidence in um, the field. What we found was that early and middle stage um, individuals um, had much lower indirect and out-of-pocket cost expenditures compared to those late stages of uh, disease progression. And we found that they really did increase as individuals advanced. The cost categories most impacted did vary by group, but we found that the medical cost, uh, which is inclusive of prescription and other kind of medical related procedures was the largest driver of these costs. What was interesting is kind of in the early and middle stage is that um, food delivery <laughs> was, was a very big one, which you can understand. People may not be cooking at home anymore. And home modifications. You know, when an yep. individual advances, that's when you really start to see kind of that spike in expenditures. And that can be anything from putting railings and, you know, in, along the walkway in your entrance of your home or in the shower and bathroom so you can get in and out. Um, those things tend to be um, a little bit more pricey, but we found that those are really the three largest drivers of cost. Um, and so right now we're really digging into where are those costs really bore out? Are there specific things that we need to really explore um, at each stage in expenditure so that we can better understand um, the impact of HD in, in all stages of progression? Um, what we were interested in seeing, though, is those in early HD did um, have somewhat higher medical costs, and we're trying to understand that better. Um, some hypotheses are working kind of explanations um, have been discussed. One of them being is that individuals may be seeking other 
clinical care services. They're not seeing a neurologist yet, but perhaps they're going to see a mental health professional or a therapist. Perhaps they're going to see a physical therapist or some type of kind of, uh, you know, prior to voter diagnosis. And so we really want to understand why those costs are higher, but we suspect that it may be because that they are seeking care for other things that are not tied to function or motor diagnosis. And that's what we're trying to really kind of explore a little bit. And more. I would say that's a hundred percent correct. Um, yeah. As somebody who, um, so I received a diagnosis of neurocognitive disorder related to HD in, in October, 2022. And the, I've talked to many people in this prodromal stage of HD um, and yes, we're all speaking where we're supposed to go because our neurologists are saying, you don't have movement. So there's no reason for us to see you. Mm -hmm. And so then you're stuck going, well, what do I do for the cognitive symptoms that I'm dealing with and the behavioral symptoms that I'm dealing with? And, and as they progress, like, what the hell do I do? So you start going to see what specialists you can go to. I was lucky enough to know to see a neuropsychologist, but not everybody knows that, you know, and, exactly. and so people start searching. So I would bet that has a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, I also find it very interesting that the first thing you mentioned in indirect costs was food delivery. Um, and the reason for that is I can totally relate to that because where I was going to the grocery store all the time um, before, and because I was working, you know, in a, in a healthcare setting, I, I wasn't home. So I'd eat at the hospital or whatever. But then when you come home, now you're eating at home all the time. Well, mm -hmm. there's a lot of social anxiety involved with that prodromal stage of HD that I was not aware of. Cause I've never been a socially anxious person. Mm -hmm. Um, and I am now. And so going to the grocery store is very hard for me with my anxiety. So it's much easier for me to just order my groceries and have them come to me. And then I'm not freaking out about stuff and, uh, not feeling like I got to keep my head down and, and just go through. Um, so yeah, I find that very interesting and probably very accurate. Um, because yeah. I imagine there's a lot of people who do that now, you know, just oh, trying to yeah. find things sent to your house instead of having to go and deal with social anxiety. And that's the thing. It's like people will employ strategies that help them to cope and manage their experience as much as possible. And so home delivery, I think, really highlights earlier on prior to motor diagnosis that these changes may be happening. Maybe it's that anxiety, like to your point of kind of those cognitive symptoms that may be surfacing that makes them feel a little bit hesitant or not so comfortable or having to um, plan more involved trips to getting food and, and, and making those uh, trips. So um, it's it's great, you know, to, not great, but it, it's good to hear you share that. I appreciate you sharing that because we're, we're very interested in seeing what's driving that within that early um, progression group. I'd be um, interested to see too, if with the direct costs in that early group, if um, specialists like pain doctors, um, psychiatrists for because I've always described my symptoms coming on like ADHD, but I've never had ADHD in my life. And I know mm. I didn't have it before because I had baseline testing seven years ago. So um, like I told you, I'm a very proactive person. And so I got a baseline test done. You know, you're touching yeah. on a really important um, symptom, you know, cognitive symptoms aren't often, you know, we, we 
typically think of the traditional kind of motor and function uh, type of things, but very, you know, very rarely are we talking about the other symptoms um, within the trajectory. And it's a very, you know, many alterations, psychological, cognitive, and behavioral are kind of happening even earlier stages. And we know that depression, anxiety are symptoms that are experienced kind of earlier in the prodrome or kind of that early manifest uh, groups. And so that's kind of consistent with literature, but we kind of need to do more exploration exactly the kind of anxiety. Is it just social anxiety, situational? And I think your point, you know, sharing that experience really kind of touches on the variability that we see, um, you know, in early, uh, you know, HD, especially before, you know, a diagnosis is actually rendered and people start to see a specialized, uh, you know, doctor to kind of take care of their symptoms and manage their overall care. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I'll I'll be interested to see as you get more into the nitty gritty of that, what comes up. Yeah, well, one of the, you know, I got kind of just getting a very kind of high level, like I said, we're kind of getting into, into the data analyses now. Um, but what we found is like in overall, you know, a rough estimate, um, individuals are spending over nine, almost $10,000, uh, people with HD on these and direct and out-of-pocket costs. And obviously in companion, it's about comparable, close to $10,000, but it does go up to about $16,000 per year for uh, late stage individuals. And so, you know, understanding what those costs look like, understanding those factors that are contributing um, to that can really help us make more informed decisions about overall care, policy, um, and and hopefully really move the field forward and being able to address the needs of, of this population. One of the findings that was really most interesting just from our preliminary analysis is the amount of time companions uh, had kind of provided caregiving time. And what was really interesting is that companions on average um, spent close to approximately seven hours uh, per week. Um, each day, excuse me, um, on a typical weekday uh, of time providing care. And yeah. we found that there was no difference in what they were doing during the weekday yeah. uh, compared to the weekend, which really underscores uh, and highlights um, a challenge that families are experiencing. There are no days off, nope. that that care giving is round the clock. Um, and it really also underscores the need for caregiver resources for companions who are providing the time while working. Um, and a large time majority jobs, of, yep. of our sample was working about a little, I think a little more than half, if I'm not mistaken, uh, were working, but they were still providing that same amount of time. Um, you know, when companions of later stage uh, people with HD, their time went up to close to over like uh, almost 10 to 12 hours upwards of that. And so obviously until those individuals may transition into kind of inpatient, uh, you know, or long-term care facilities, that burden is really um, seen and observed uh, in the amount of hours and time spent providing that caregiving time. Obviously, there's variations across the stage, but what we found was that as individuals progressed, more time was provided to their, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. person with, with HD. But we were really kind of, it kind of, again, uh, reinforced and highlighted um, something that we've known is that it is round-the-clock care, um, and, and sometimes caregiving can be, unfortunately, um, a thankless job. And so I do want to just take the time to, to acknowledge all the companion 
uh, caregivers out here. Uh, we see you, we acknowledge you, and we see that as understanding that experience just as important as we do for our HD population and community. And we're really committed to um, sharing this information and, and these results so that we have a better understanding and really develop resources to support not only individuals with HD, but also our companion caregivers. Yeah, for sure. Because a lot of times those companion caregivers are not just taking care of one person with HD. This is a familial disease. So they usually end up taking care of multiple people with HD, whether exactly. it's a, a child or, um, you know, or somebody else within the family, because now they have the experience. And so a family member is like, well, what do I do? So if you think of that as well, mm -hmm. the caregiver burden never goes away. Exactly. There, like some, you said, there are no days off. Yeah, and then some of the caregivers are at risk themselves. So contending with those challenges on top of caregiving, we did find that those expenditures were higher and highest amongst those that had diets, you know, coming from that same household, that they are incurring additional costs around that care and for their own care. And so we're very interested in looking to see how those um, cost outcomes differ, not only for diets, but for those individuals who are also at risk. And so that's another kind of aspect or component of the study that we're really looking forward to analyzing and really kind of get our hands around. So we're excited about, about that analysis as well. Absolutely. Um, so are you looking at going further with this to more sites to see if you can get more information? Will you stop here? Do you think that's enough to be able to move forward with? with things or? Yeah, such a great question. Um, one of the big things that we are trying to do is create that kind of true picture or true cost of HD. And that means um, getting, obtaining direct cost data from Medicare Medicaid claims data and combining it with our survey data. And we'd like to use that data so that we can be able to assess and potentially estimate what annual cost over time may look like for HD. So our first step is really to combine it with uh, direct cost data to do some analyses. And hopefully we can have a better idea and sense of modeling what disease cost along the trajectory will look like. And it would provide a kind of that full picture, uh, which will be extremely helpful information to our industry partners who are committed to developing novel therapeutics for HD. Um, but we are starting to think about what does the next phase of uh, this study and this work look like? Um, we'd like to finish the analysis so we can obviously make an informed decision, but there's a lot of interest in it, and, and we've heard from the wider community um, that they'd like us to go into kind of other areas like in the EU and UK and, and Canada. And so we're thinking about doing that. One of the challenges is that these healthcare systems differ, right? And these structures of these systems differ based on region, but there are synergies and similarities across regions uh, and globally that we can still kind of combine this information to make helpful and informed decisions about overall care. And so uh, that's another element that we're, an aspect that we're really interested in kind of thinking ahead. We also want to ask the wider community, and we'd love to hear you know, from those who are listening in today and from you about how often are people comfortable really providing this information? You know, this is a lot of really getting in the weeds of cost and, you know, having to kind of like dissect or who paid for what, you know, it, it is a, a take some time and effort for people to provide that information, but is this something that people would be comfortable providing and sharing 
reporting on on an annual basis every several years. We're just not sure. And so we would like to survey the broader community to get a better sense of how are people comfortable or do people feel sharing this information? And what is the frequency that we should be collecting this information so that we can make those decisions kind of in real time armed with this information? So those are kind of things that are cooking kind of in the background. Yeah, those are, I think that's great. Um, oh, you know, I, just, I think personally, oh, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say, and obviously we plan to write up these results in the year ahead. And so we okay. look forward to having a publication of the primary study results first. And then obviously the other things that I talked about will be coming, uh, will follow. And that will be available on the CHDI website? The publication? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we, you know, I don't know exactly where it will live per se, but we are trying to find ways of what's the best way when the uh, manuscript is published to disseminate it to the broader community. So we're happy to share it. I'm happy to share a copy yeah, with you and, and, and um, I'll keep you posted in, in the coming months because we're certainly working on that now. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Um, no, I was just going to say, so for personally, like my thought is, you know, if you're, if you're doing it via a, an online survey, Mm -hmm. that is anonymous. I think it's a lot easier for us to participate and not worry so much about it. <clears throat> and you could potentially do annually or every two years even, and it would be okay. Um, I think it's a lot harder to have those conversations in person at an enroll HD meeting. And yes, like, I don't know that I would be comfortable with that, but if I had a survey in front of me on a computer and I, you know, knew it was anonymous, sure. I don't mind pro providing that information. So, um, yeah. You know, and, that's things to consider too. And I appreciate that feedback because, um, you know, you don't want to, we're very mindful of research participant burden. We don't want to overwhelm our population. And we really just appreciate all of uh, the participation of, of the wider community in this research. And so we understand that there are many competing interests, um, but this is such important information that we're trying to make it as least burdensome as possible to collect this information. So these are the things that we're kind of thinking through right now. Um, I think the main thing is making sure that we're getting the most accurate information about the lived experience in, in the context of cost so that we really can make the, the most informed decisions, you know, armed with this information. And that's really what's what's so critical. Um, you know, I wanted to go back to an earlier point that you made about going, you know, to Congress and, and speaking to them. Um, and, and one of the, you know, pieces of legislation that has been submitted um, and has not passed yet is the HD's Parity Act. And, and one of the challenges really with that is um, kind of waiting for this two-year Medicare kind of benefits to kick in. Um, and so by having the HD Parity Act passed, it will actually waive that two-year period and also enable individuals to be able to get Social Security disability um, benefits, which really can um, help augment the care and treatment and ensure that individuals get the right treatment at the right time. And, and unfortunately, that two-year kind of waiting period, you know, HD progression is still happening. Um, symptoms are changing. And so that time is really critical. We just don't have that two years to wait. Um, and so we really hope that it'll pass. I know Congress is about to, you know, hopefully approve the fiscal budget for the year. Um, but that's something that we are really um, crossing our fingers um, and, and hoping that legislation gets passed for that act. Gets yeah, I, I mean, that's such a good point. You know, um, while, we, while we consider this a gradual disease, people don't realize 
what can happen in a year and how much change can happen in a year. And when you don't have um, medications that not only for HD, okay, in that two-year waiting period, but for your other conditions, because you've got to realize when you don't have insurance and you, you know, if you make too much to be able to get Medicaid, so you're in this gap of two years and you can't get medications, not only for your HD, but all your other conditions, okay. everything is getting worse in those two years. And exactly. then everything is going to cost more. Um, oh and my, my dad God. was a perfect example of that. Um, mm -hmm. My dad was a diabetic and he could not get Medicaid during that time. And mm -hmm. he, his kidneys started to fail during this two year period. And so he ended up having to have a kidney transplant. And then that led to and to dialysis, which is how much money. So yeah. all of this stemmed from not being able to get what he needed during that two-year waiting period. Oh, my um, goodness. It makes a huge difference, especially for somebody with HD, because all of it co kind of coincides. If you If your HD is getting worse, something else over here is not okay either. Or it could be complicating your HD. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have to look at overall health for somebody with HD instead of just pieces, because, you know, if that person get, gets a UTI, mentally, they're having issues with their HD mm -hmm. and all of it plays a role. I mean, it really does. Um, okay. So it's, it's a so good much thing. For, no, and just okay. hearing that experience is so important. So I appreciate you sharing that because I think it really is such a example of some of the challenges that do come up, you know, something that is not necessarily, you know, caused or, but it's co-occurring with HD and having that kind of experience really just shows you how those costs can go up quite quickly before, you know, things are approved for, you know, or you're accepted under that coverage plan. Um, and that can be incredibly costly. I mean, the costs around that are so, and so uh, we really do hope that the information we have can not only explore and really identify what factors are, or domains are most um, contributing to these costs, but also allowing us to be able to say, hey, look, these are the consequences that we see based on this waiting kind of period. Um, and so fingers crossed for 2024 that that uh, act gets passed. Um, and we're certainly closely monitoring um, the activities to see uh, where it is. I, th I think it's still on the floor, as they say, um, but I don't think there's been any movement as of right now um, since that was, I think, reintroduced in either 2020 or 2021. Right. Yeah, we haven't seen much in that yeah. way, but I am very excited about what you shared today. Um, I, and I'm excited to see um, what comes out of it and where you go with it, because I think it's going to be really good data that um, is really going to benefit us, right? Like this is this is huge because these are numbers that pharma needs uh, to be able to, to realize burden as well. It's numbers that our government needs so we know about resources, policies, things like you were just saying. Um, and also, you know, when it comes to making drugs affordable, um, especially, you know, I have a huge interest in gene therapies. And so mm -hmm. for me, I think of, you know, costs related to that. And the fact that if you you have a gene therapy that works and how, you know, an upfront cost like a gene therapy where it's expensive upfront, mm -hmm. but ultimately if you're saving people from this advanced stage HD, it's going to pay for itself, you know? Exactly. So. And a lot, 
And a lot of the modeling work is exploring exact, seeing how soon could we introduce and when would it have an impact in, in terms of, of cost. And so I think um, understanding that is so important, um, but all this information really allows us to make comparisons across conditions and then also obviously inform, hopefully reduce the overall burden and cost burden um, that people are experiencing. So yeah. very important. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much thank for coming on here and, and sharing it with us. I truly appreciate it. Yeah, I, thank you so much again. Um, and we, we look forward to sharing uh, the manuscript and hopefully sharing what our kind of next steps and future directions will look like. But just thank you for your time. Absolutely. I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, so for those who are listening, thanks so much for listening today. Obviously, we talked about something that some people may find a little bit harder to talk about finances and, and things like that and overall cost of HD, but it's an extremely important topic, especially right now as we are dealing with um, with so many things on the forefront and in our, in our pipeline as far as uh, potential treatments go. Um, these are things that, these are numbers, this is data we need to have for when we have something approved. And we need to be working on it now. And so it's huge. And so this is why this is such an important topic, guys. Um, so I highly encourage you to, um, you know, if, if this becomes available for you to, to take, I would take it and share the information so we can get accurate data and be honest. I know those of us who are who have been caregivers, you know, we tend to downplay stuff, right? Because um, that's just what we do as caregivers. But caregiver burden is a huge problem. And in order to get resources for the community, people need to know what those problems are and mm -hmm. what those costs are. And so be very honest whenever doing surveys like this um, and, and don't downplay what, what you're dealing with. Um, I know I am terrible about doing it. So, you know, it's more <laughs> of a reminder to me and why I'm saying it. But anyway, Again, really great show. Um, very thankful that Jamie came on to share this information. Um, make sure that you guys are tuning in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern time for a new show. If you're interested in coming on the HD Uncut series, please reach out to me. I would love to have you guys. It's the Uncut Uncensored show uh, monthly for you guys to share your thoughts on anything that you want to share your thoughts on. Um, and that way we are sharing a voice uh, for HD and showing the real HD um, I also am always looking pe for people to do our um, Young Investigators series with all the new research that is coming out in HD. So certainly reach out to me. My email is lauren at help4hd.org, and that's H-E-L-P, the number four, hd.org. Um, and until next time, guys, take care and love you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.help4hd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications.